0: Just me, friendly neighborhood campus minister. Um, it's good to see you all. Welcome to RUF. Uh, my name's Thomas, if I haven't met you. Um, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're out of the reach of God's grace. At the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is that we believe that fundamentally, the way that God relates to us is based on his grace, on his kindness. Uh, We don't earn God's affection based on our good works, and we can't lose it based on our failures. That's the thing that you're going to hear in RUF again and again. And this semester, we're going through a series on the book of Exodus uh, called Knowing God. Knowing God. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and uh, kind of we've been saying that it answers two questions. Who is God, and how do we relate to him? We're going to be looking at Exodus 3 that Mary just read for us tonight. So let's pray, and then we can go ahead and get started. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to get together and to uh, consider your word. Uh, Lord, I I don't know where everybody's at tonight, uh, but I know many of us are probably tired uh, hitting the first round of of tests, maybe. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are. Lord, whether that's um, in fatigue, or um, excitement, or anxiety, or sadness, Lord, will you meet us where we are, and will you show us um, something about who you are? Lord, may we see you clearly uh, tonight in your word. All these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so have you ever had an encounter with someone that left you feeling extremely confused? I have on multiple occasions, uh, but one of them that comes to mind kind of to the forefront uh, was one with my neighbor in St. Louis. Her name was Jennifer, uh, and she lived right above Molly and I when we lived in St. Louis. And one night we were coming back from a date, and the way that it kind of worked in this apartment is you would come in the back door, and then um, like you wouldn't ever enter from the front door just because there were, it was just a weird entrance. So we came in the back door of our apartment. And I remembered once we got in the door that I had some laundry that I had to go pick up. So I decided to go downstairs and get the laundry. And as I just opened the front door to go back into this kind of like common space that led to the basement, I heard someone like very like quickly running down the stairs and like loudly, like thuds, like crazy. And so I'm like, okay, what's about to happen here? And then all of a sudden around the corner comes Jennifer, my neighbor. And I noticed a couple things about Jennifer immediately. One she had this like weird look of calmness on her face. She was just like utterly calm for someone who had just ran down the stairs. Uh second, she was carrying a cane. Uh and she wasn't carrying a cane in the sense of like walking with it. First off, she never did that. She was carrying a cane in such a way that you would like carry a baseball bat. I was just like, "Okay, that's really interesting." And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out what she's doing and she just stands there, looks at me with this look of utter calmness and says, if you ever hear that sound again, call the police. And then she just walks right out the door and gets in her car and peels out. I was just like, what What sound? (laughs) Like, Like, I have no idea. Like, what sound am I supposed to be listening for? How do the police fit into this? Like, do I need to be worried? Why are you carrying a cane? Why are you so calm? Right? Like there's so many pieces that just did not fit together. I was completely confused. And then this passage that Mary just read for us, we see an encounter with God that I think would have left Moses and the Israelites in a similar place. Very confused, unsure of how all of the details fit together. You see, in this uh, encounter with God, we see two primary things about God that seemingly, kind of at first glance, they don't seem like they work. In this story, we see that God is holy and that God is committed to his people. Or to use maybe other language, uh, theological language, to say maybe God is transcendent and God is eminent. Or maybe more simply, that God is, in a sense, unapproachable. But in another sense, he comes to us. How do those things fit together? I think we don't see this sort of combination in people. We're used to people being either commanding and powerful or generous and accepting. And when we see somebody who is like a combination of those two things, it sticks out to us. It's like why we're so shocked when we hear about a celebrity who's like actually a good person. You know, like it's this person who's just larger than life, but at the same time, is still like a kind person. It stands out to us. I think we long for this sort of union. We long for for someone to be powerful and loving. And this passage shows us that God is both of these things. So what we see in this encounter is that God is both holy and committed to his people. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see first, God is holy. Second, God is committed to his people. All right, so God is holy, first off. So at the beginning of this passage, uh, Moses is in Midian, um, which we, if you were here last week, you remember that Moses kind of got himself kicked out of Egypt uh, because he kind of rashly attacked this Egyptian, uh, and then he went into Midian and kind of started a family. And we see uh, here that Moses is in Midian tending to his father-in-law's flocks so I just want to point out kind of the the irony of this. Moses was kind of like had this privileged position in Egypt. He was like the top dog, prince of Egypt. And now he is a like shepherd of someone else's flocks. And if you're like familiar at all with ancient Egypt, Egyptian literature, which you're definitely not. And that's okay, um, You might know that uh, for Egyptians, like a shepherd would have been like the lowest of the low. So we see here that Moses has gone from being like the prince of Egypt to this rural, shameful shepherd. And then Moses, uh, he's taking his, his father-in-law's flock um, kind of far away from where he's from to Mount Horeb, a location that becomes significant later on in Exodus. We see in kind of in verses 2 and 3, as he's out in the wilderness, he has this experience. It says in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So this uh, is kind of like the first really, truly supernatural thing that we've seen in the entire book of Exodus thus far. Uh, We see this like bush that should be burned up is not being burned up. It's like this, this kind of amazing, miraculous thing happening. And maybe you're here thinking like, okay... I was giving this whole Christianity thing a try, but like all of a sudden I'm walking in here and there are bushes that are on fire like that. I know that doesn't happen. They don't just like not burn up, right? These miraculous occurrences, they don't just happen like this. And this is why I have a problem with the Bible because it's full of all these just miraculous things that just don't actually happen. And if that's you, I just want to point out, I think that you're in good company when you come to the text with that sort of problem. Because we see in verse 3, Moses actually has the same assumption. When Moses sees this this bush on fire and not being consumed, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. You see, Moses knows as well as we do that, that a bush doesn't just like catch on fire and not be consumed, especially out in the desert. I would imagine that a bush out in the desert would be something like a Christmas tree like in February, like when you put it outside and light it on fire, like it's awesome. If you haven't done it, you should. Um, but I didn't tell you to do that because I'm a pastor. But it's pretty awesome if you do actually do it. But it would it would go up in flames, like really quick. So this would have been like a curious sight for Moses to see. And we see from this passage that he's not just encountering some amazing, miraculous thing. He's actually encountering God himself. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's holy ground. So this word holy, we see this here. Uh, we sang this in a song earlier. It's a word that I think a lot, I mean, we've all heard, obviously, uh, and it's a word that's kind of unapologetically religious. Um, But what does it actually mean? The way that it's used, you might have heard people say, like, holy cow. Uh, One that I recently came across, uh, our realtor, when she was showing us around houses, would always say, holy buckets. Is that a Nebraska thing? I've never heard anyone say that until I moved out here. Super random. Um, Another kind of recent reference I've heard to this word, uh, Justin Bieber just came out with a song called Holy. Yeah, Uh, the chorus goes like this. It says, the way you hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, makes me feel so holy, 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 holy. What's Beaver doing with this word? Uh, He's describing the way that his, presumably his wife, is making him feel, right? There's this sense in which the way that his wife makes him feel gives him this feeling of like transcendent specialness, That it's not enough to just say that he feels really good. It's got to be some sort of like religious nature to it. And I think that we can all affirm that that's something that you should look for in a spouse, someone who makes you feel really special. But that's actually not what the Bible means when it says holy. When it says that the ground here has become holy, that's not what it means. Uh, The Hebrew word for holy, it, it means something like sacred, pure, or set apart. It comes from a verb that means to cut off, so to be separate from. That's what it means. And when the Bible talks about holiness, I think it has two specific kind of categories um, that it's referring to. The first is what I'm going to call dependent holiness, Uh, and that's like when something is declared holy. Um, You see in the New Testament, Paul declares the children of believers to be holy. Uh, We see even in this passage, like just because of God's presence, the ground itself becomes holy. Later in the Bible, we see that Israel is declared holy, the priesthood is declared holy, the tabernacle is declared holy. The idea is that something common, when it is set apart, somehow becomes holy. That's dependent holiness. But there's another way of thinking about it, too. There's something called independent holiness. And this refers to God only. It's a a moral purity and an absolute power. A moral purity and an absolute power that doesn't arise from anything outside of God. It's not conferred on him. It's simply who he is. It's his godness. When we say that God is holy, we're just describing fundamentally his uniqueness, who he is. There's no one like him. And we see this sort of holiness is on display in this burning bush. We see God's absolute power here. The fire that's burning is independent of the bush. It just keeps going. It doesn't need the bush to sustain it. Nothing started it. Nothing's going to end it. We see something about God's eternal nature in this. But we also see God's moral purity in this fire. We see it because the very ground becomes holy because of this fire. Moses, when he sees it, is attracted to it. He wants to move towards it, and God tells him to to slow down. Don't come too close and take off your sandals. There's something, like, just transcendent about God's moral purity. But how should we respond to this sort of holiness? Like, what do we do with holiness? And we see kind of from Moses' response in verse 5, God says to Moses, do not come near and take your sandals off your feet. Both of these would have been kind of signs of reverence at this time. When you're in the face of like absolute power in this day and age, you would kind of keep your distance and you would take your sandals off as a sign of reverence. But we see also in verse 6 that Moses kind of, he hides his face. He hides his face for he was afraid to look at God. See, there's something in God's holiness, there's something in his purity that causes us to reckon with the fact that we are not pure, that we are not holy. You see that Moses, he's attracted to God's holiness. There's some sense in which he's like, I was made for this. But the closer he gets, he realizes, but I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I think you can kind of put these together um, with uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia book, uh, the way that he talks about Aslan, who's kind of the, the God figure in this. But this thing that's kind of said throughout the entire series about Aslan is that he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. And what do they mean by that? They mean that in approaching Aslan, and I think in the same way approaching God, there's a real sense in which you can't control him like there is a sense in which god can do whatever he wants and in approaching him we we should be we should have reverence and in approaching him we should have absolute humility because we're encountering a greatness that is beyond us we're encountering a greatness that makes us realize our own failure our own weakness our own sin so god is holy but that's not all we see in this passage. We also see kind of on the other side, God is committed to his people. He's committed to his people. So if you would look with me to verses seven and eight. Uh, God says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So we see here that God sees his people. Even though he is in a sense unapproachable, even though he is this holy God dwelling in unapproachable fire, we see he says, I have surely seen, I have heard the cry of my people, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to do something about it. In fact, like twice in this section, we see God refer to Israel as my people. My people. This God who is holy and transcendent has has allied himself with a sinful people somehow. It would have been shocking for the first people reading this, and it is shocking for us too we see here that the God who reveals himself in unapproachable fire has committed himself to coming down and delivering Israel. And he says to Moses uh, that he's going to use him to do it. He's going to work through Moses, and Moses is understandably apprehensive. Uh, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Understand, I mean, it's a big task. He's going to be sent back to Pharaoh, a place where he has run away in fear of his life. And then how does God respond? God says, I will be with you. I just want to notice something here. Just notice how gentle God is with Moses' humanity here. In a situation where, where Moses is asked to do something that he is almost certain will end in his death, He asks God for further assurance. And what does God do? He gives it to him. God doesn't tell him to like just man up and go do it. God says, I will be with you. God is gentle with him in his humanity. And then we see Moses kind of ask another question of God in verse 13. Uh, He says to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And this kind of reveals something about the spiritual state of Israel. Remember, they've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years. And it seems that they have some degree of understanding of who they are as a people. They know that they're the children of Abraham, they know that that God is very interested in them but it doesn't seem like they have a really solid conception of who God is. They have some sort of rusty understanding of who he is. And in response to this, God gets very specific with who he is. He says in verse 14, I am who I am. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then he goes on to say in verse fifteen, "Say thus to the people of Israel: The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you." There's been a lot of stuff written about uh, just just what this name means. Uh, what we do know is that it's based on the so the I am who I am. It's on the Hebrew word for to be, and some people are saying that it's kind of like God giving some sort of existential statement, like. I am the one who exists. Other people think it's God saying, I will be who I will be. Like, I'm going to cause to be what I'm going to cause to be. Other people just think it's God kind of promising some sort of covenantal presence with them. And I think in reality, it's probably a little bit of everything. But I just kind of want to zoom back a little bit and, and talk about the significance of this. From like a big picture standpoint, what we see here is the holy God the one who is unapproachable, giving his name to his people. He's giving his name to a sinful people. And what does it mean to give someone a name? It's as if like, God is giving Moses his business card, and then he's like turning it over and writing his personal line on the back. right? It implies some sort of intimacy, some sort of special access that they didn't have before, Uh, Many of you who have ever done dating at any length will understand this. Uh, Early on when you're dating someone and you're referring to their parents or you meet them, it's Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, right? And they're they're like, the parents want to make sure that you call them Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and and they also want to make sure that you know that they can kill you, right? (laughs) It's intense. But after a while, like if you kind of prove yourself to be like a good, trustworthy person, who, who is good for their their son or daughter, eventually they might say, you know, call me by my first name. Call me by my first name. See, giving someone your name, it implies access. It implies approval. It implies approachability. See, in the same way that that kind of works in dating, this is the Lord, the God of unapproachable holiness. He's giving his people a way to approach him. It's showing us here the Lord is committed to his people. He wants them to approach him. So what does this mean for us? I think just very basically, God desires relationship with us. God desires relationship with us. I think so often we can get like so consumed with like learning things about God that we forget the simplicity of the fact that he desires relationship with us, that we know things about God in order to be in relationship with him. You see that God desires relationship. That's how any of this happened, right? God is holy. That's the story of the Bible. He's unapproachable. There would have been no way for us to have relationship with him unless he pursued us. The story of the Bible is not like otherwise good people seeking after God Trying to figure him out and God being like hiding himself away and not revealing himself. No, the story of the Bible is God seeking us, God making a way, God moving heaven and earth to bring a rebellious people who don't even want to know him to himself. The fact that any of us are here is an example of that. God desires relationship with us, He makes a way for us to know Him. But I think this also means, and I think this is significant, that God is not threatened by our humanity. God is not threatened by our humanity. See, God reveals his name to his people to accommodate to what they need. They need to know who this God is. And God doesn't shame them for wanting further confirmation of who he is. Instead, he gives them his name. When Moses asks for assurance, God gives him his divine presence. See, I think so often we can get this idea that, like, we're not allowed to be human beings. On some level, to be a Christian, you have to just, like, never struggle. You can never doubt. You can never, like, need a nap. That's not true. We see here is that God is very gentle with Moses' humanity, with his people's humanity. And indeed, he is gentle with our humanity. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have doubts. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have, have needs. You're allowed to ask God for things. You're allowed to be a human. So God is holy and God is committed to his people. God is in a sense unapproachable, and yet in another sense he comes to us. He's the God of the burning bush, but also the God who gives his name to his people. This is a tension. There's a tension between these two things. It's hard for us to imagine how they might fit together. And it runs through the entirety, really, of the Old Testament. We see again and again that God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. But we see also that God is like astonishingly committed to his people. He bears with them again and again. And this tension is is kind of in a couple ways acknowledged and slightly resolved throughout the Old Testament story. Um, The book immediately after Exodus, uh, the book of Leviticus, is kind of an attempt to resolve this tension. Uh, We see kind of in our passage tonight, we see a holy God. And then the story of Exodus is this holy God wanting to dwell in the midst of his people. And the problem again and again is that they're sinful, and a holy God can't dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And how does, that, how, how does a holy God eventually dwell in the midst of a sinful people? The book of Leviticus is how. It describes this intense sacrificial system, this like rigorous, all of these like purity laws, all sorts of stuff, because that's what it takes for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. There were all of these sacrifices that dealt with sin and uncleanness and impurity, and they dealt with all of this temporarily and made a way for God to dwell in the midst of his people. But we also see throughout the Old Testament these kind of different roles within Israel, the prophets. And the prophet's job was to call a sinful people back to covenant faithfulness. And we see the priest, the priest's job was to represent the people to God, to be an advocate, to offer sacrifices. And then the king, the king was the one who was supposed to represent God to the people and ensure justice. And all of these were strategies of how to kind of resolve this tension of a holy God dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. But really, the Old Testament ends without this being resolved. There's still this confusion How is God so holy and so unapproachable and yet he desires relationship with us? How is that going to be resolved? We see the resolution come in another Israelite. We see the resolution in the person of Jesus. See, Jesus is the priest who himself becomes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus is the true prophet who not only calls the people back to covenant faithfulness, who not only points out the the sinful nature of humanity, but he actually himself is the way to covenant faithfulness. Jesus is the true king who conquers sin and death and ensures our safety in him. You see, Jesus is where we see this tension of God's holiness and his commitment to his people come together. On the cross, we see the holy God chose to make an end To our sin, so that he wouldn't have to make an end to us. On the cross, we see that God is so committed to his people that there's nothing that he wouldn't do in order to have us. You see, Jesus gives us access to the God of perfect holiness and steadfast love. Because of Jesus, we can approach God and be transformed, not destroyed. Because of Jesus we can live in security knowing that God is committed to us. I'll just ask you, do you want this? Do you want to live in this security? Do you want to draw near to this God? Jesus is the way to draw near to God. And he offers himself to you freely. Let's pray.